welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. This is the podcast brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the head of the abuse team at Hugh James. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome back Professor Michael Salter, who is Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back, Michael. Great to meet you, Alan. Thank you very much. Before we get going with this podcast, I have to give a health warning. Given that we talk about sensitive subjects, given that sexual abuse is always a sensitive subject, it's only right that I remind everybody that what we talk about can be distressing, upsetting. And so if you feel that you might be upset by what we're going to discuss, now's the time to switch off, go make yourself a cup of coffee or do something else. Otherwise, please do stay with us. And in this particular podcast, we're going to discuss an issue which is, I would say, a little bit of a taboo subject. I think taboo is the right way of putting it. And we're going to be talking about survivor experiences of sexual arousal during sexual violence. Now, I think it's only right that we make the point right at the outset that what we're going to be talking about does not suggest in any way that victims or survivors have consented to the sexual abuse or been some kind of willing participant or or anything like that. What we're talking about is an issue that isn't really discussed because it's very uncomfortable to discuss and can be upsetting. And it is this survivor experience of recalling the actual pleasure that they may have experienced when they were being abused. So that's a sort of introduction. And I hope, Michael, you will agree with me, but that is what we are going to be delving into in this particular podcast. Yeah, that's right, Alan. I worked with my colleague, Angela Shin. In fact, uh, Angela uh, at the time was an honours student. And she was interested in looking at this issue about the fact that sexual assault and, and child sexual abuse from the victim's point of view, doesn't always physically feel bad. So our assumption, or perhaps the social assumption, is that sexual violence is characterised by, by pain and, and fear, but that's not the case for some or many survivors. And so we need to recognise the broader spectrum of experiences of sexual violence, including particularly in the case of child sexual abuse. It's, it's not uncommon that survivors report that the abuse felt good physically or that they psychologically have affectionate or positive view of the perpetrator. And then this can be quite confusing because they're in a culture that says that they should experience sexual violence in a particular kind of way, you know, as painful, as scary and so on. But that wasn't their experience. So what we're trying to do in this paper is clearly distinguish physical arousal from psychological pleasure, from consent. That consent is not the same as pleasure and it's not the same as arousal. Good. So that's an excellent introduction, if I may say so. And of course, 
you and Andrew have produced a paper which is titled Betrayed by My Body, Survivor Experiences of Sexual Arousal and Psychological Pleasure During Sexual Violence. And this is published in the Journal of Gender-Based Violence. So those who are interested can go to the journal and they can read your paper and ascertain all the nuances and details that the research has uncovered. That's right. The The data set for this paper actually comes from Reddit. So Reddit is a, a large social media platform. It's one of the largest in the world. It operates in a discussion forum format. So people will start a page, often called a subreddit, on a particular topic, and then people are able to correspond and talk and interact. And you see that flow down the page. You see the conversation and the text there. So some years ago, there was a subreddit that was created by a person who's actually a therapist, and the subreddit was on this topic. It was on um, arousal and pleasure during sexual assault. And so what we did was we undertook an analysis, actually, of the conversation that was taking place on that page. And there was a number of really interesting features of that discussion. The, the page was really pitched at adult experiences of sexual assault, but what we found was that the majority of respondents on the page who were to- talking about their personal experience were child sexual abuse survivors. And what we also found was that a lot of people on the page had never spoken about that aspect of their experience and they're able to use Reddit in an anonymous way. So they're able to create an account that hides their name and their identity. And that gave them, I think, the courage and the confidence to talk publicly but confidentially about this really complex aspect of child sexual abuse that I think is very, very common and very confusing for children. Indeed. And I think when talking to victims of survivors, they often blame themselves. There's this misplaced sense of somehow I was to blame, which gets then tied up with shame and embarrassment and the suppression that prevents them from disclosing. And I think there's a confusion, isn't there, sometimes on the part of victims and survivors, that because they didn't resist or that somehow they perceive themselves as some kind of willing participant, that they must have consented to the sexual abuse on the part of the perpetrator, which is clearly in the vast, vast majority of cases, not the situation at all. That's absolutely right. So if, if we take the situation of a, of a child, for example, and you know, child sexual abuse is often not forceful, it's often not violent, although it can be, uh, it often involves someone that the child actually quite likes and admires and, and so on. And so sexual abuse can have a pleasant quality to it. It can be physiologically pleasant. It can be physically arousing or psychologically pleasant. And of course, a child doesn't have the aptitude or the cognitive ability to make that distinction to say, well, this feels good, but I don't want it. And so we we may have situations, for example, where children may return for abuse. They may go back to the place where abuse is taking place. You know, they may actually ask the the offender uh, for for abuse. And then, of course, and it's understandable, there's a, a great deal of a great sense of shame in this. Children and adult survivors can feel very complicit in this. And what we're trying to say very clearly in this paper is that child sexual abuse can have these features. It can be physically or psychologically pleasant. And the child is has still not consented and the child is not implicated in their own assault. 
One of the differences with the adult experience of sexual assault that we saw when we did our analysis of this subreddit was that for adults where a sexual assault had taken place and that sexual assault included a, a pleasurable, a physically pleasurable experience for the victim, the adults had the cognitive ability to say, well, my body responded this way, but I didn't like it, I didn't want it, you know, I did not consent. Even though my body responded this way, I did not consent. Now, that is an aptitude that an adult has, and what we found in our research was actually that was not apparent in the child experience, that children, because of their developmental age, are much more likely to conflate, well, this feels good, therefore it's my fault. You've got an interesting quote from one of the participants in your paper, which I think really will resonate with a lot of survivors. And this was a person who was abused in childhood. They were abused by a school, their school teacher. And they said, and I quote, I was molested and raped by a teacher I had a lot of respect for throughout a couple of years of my high school career. At the time, I viewed it as consensual, but it was the first real sexual experience I'd ever encountered. After the event, it really fucked me up mentally in the aspects that I became hyper-promiscuous as well as depressed. It can really fuck up your mental state and views on sexuality and what is acceptable and what is not. I went from no sexual activity pre-rape to promiscuity for quite some time. And you and Angela then go on and talk about that particular experience and that particular insight. And you you say this post connects the betrayal of a child's sexual abuse to promiscuity and depression. So I think a lot of survivors will think that could have been me or perhaps that was me. And they will recognize all aspects of that. And of course, that explains why, in my opinion, sexual abuse can be so, so damaging long-term, if not life-term. Yeah, so in terms of the, the responses that we found on the subreddit, a number of survivors raised concerns about the effect of um, early arousal and pleasure in the context of child sexual abuse on the development of their sexuality, on subsequent sexual formation, subsequent sexual activity uh, into, into adulthood. And this really makes sense when we think about the fact that somebody's sexual life and and their initial experiences of sexuality occurs in that particular non-consensual context and often without support and without care because you know there there wasn't a protective intervention they're then trying to figure out and understand these really difficult feelings and that can show up in all sorts of ways including in different sorts of sexual behavior also sometimes abstinence and we had survivors in the data set talking about, you know, actually refusing to engage in, in sexual activity or being afraid of sexual activity. Mm. So this, this notion that consent and pleasure and arousal are not the same thing and we need to distinguish them is really important. It's really important that we emphasize that to survivors. And also think that there's we, a reluctance to differentiate because... And if so, why? Well, often what we're saying to young people, especially with contemporary sexual education, is we're saying to young people, you know, that actually desire and arousal is a part of good sex. Now, it is a part of good sex, that's true, but it's also a part of bad sex. It's also a part of non-consensual sex. And so 
when we're teaching young people about healthy sexuality and healthy relationships, we actually need to have a lot of nuance because if what we're saying to, to teenagers is, you know, well, you know, good sex is, is enjoyable and it's arousing and, you know, you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't consent to things you don't want to do. But sometimes people have not consented to things that they've enjoyed and that's true in childhood. Children cannot consent to sexual activity. It's also true in adulthood. And we had examples in the data set of adults who did not consent to sexual activity that nonetheless they desired. So, for example, they didn't want to progress to sexual activity for religious reasons or because of concerns about pregnancy. But nonetheless, they were experiencing arousal, but they did not consent. And so there's many examples where people might want sex, but they don't consent to it. And then if sex actually occurs, it's still a sexual assault, despite the fact that that individual might be experiencing physiological arousal. And, and that's where the, the title of the paper comes from, uh, which and the title of the paper is Betrayed by My Body, because a number of participants in that data set, that's how they described it, that even though mentally they were saying no, they felt as though their body was reacting in a different kind of way. Well, perhaps society hasn't really come to grips with all of this because so I'm picking up on something that you said just now about children not being able to consent. So here in the UK, the law is very clear. It's a criminal offence for basically any kind of sexual activity with someone under the age of 16. And there are further offences um, which can be committed if the young person is over the age of 16. So, for example, um, sexual activity between uh, a teacher and a, a pupil who's age 17, for example. But leaving that to one side, there have been some civil law cases where defendants have raised the issue of consent where the young person is still under the age of 16 when whatever happened. And judges have found in a number of cases that the young person did consent, even though they were under the age of 16. And that basically, of course, raises eyebrows and, and um, people get concerned and so on. But I think it demonstrates that the issue can be extremely subtle and difficult for us to digest. And I don't think myself that we have necessarily really, even now in 2022, really understood the effects of sexual activity between an adult and someone under the age of 16, even if that person subsequently says, well, I did sort of, in quotes, participate, so to speak, but now I recognise that perhaps I was too young or too immature. So I think this paper of yours actually highlights some really really testy issues that society needs to get to grips with. It's a really good example where arousal is conflated with consent, where the fact that the victim in child sexual abuse, and to put it bluntly, enjoyed the sexual acts, somehow implicates them in their own abuse. And somehow it means that the abuse is less damaging. Now, what our paper is showing is that, in fact, arousal in the context of sexual abuse can be very damaging because of its long-term effects on mental health and sexual formation. 
and that arousal is a characteristic of both consensual and non-consensual sexual acts. And indeed, people can meaningfully consent to sexual acts that they don't find arousing. And that's quite common in the you know, people might consent to sexual acts that they're not aroused by because it's what their partner wants and they care about their partner and and so on and so on. So, you know, the, the presence of arousal in and of itself doesn't really tell us a hell of a lot when no. it comes to consent. And when that's the message that we're putting out there into the community and when we're giving that message to young people and sometimes we're doing that with, you know, good intentions because we're trying to help young people understand healthy relationships, you know, then unfortunately where we can be, I think, marginalising this significant group of survivors where arousal was present in child sexual abuse or arousal was present in sexual assault and we're potentially giving them a message that we don't want to give them, which is that there was some consent evidence in the offence committed against you. So I think there is education to be done here with the judiciary. I think there's education to be done with young people, just making it clear that arousal is not consent. Indeed, there's been recently here in the UK a couple of cases that have hit the headlines involving teachers and in particular female teachers having to quote in the media, to use media terminology or tabloid terminology, teacher had sex with pupil. And of course, you then see on social media lots of comments about this. And, you know, you get considerable media, uh, social media commentary to the effect, well, wasn't he a lucky lad to have sex with his teacher? You know, and the lad may have been 14, 15, whatever. And of course, that just demonstrates the total lack of understanding, both of the law and as the nature of what has actually taken place. I think those sort of stories, whilst they're sort of sensationalist, actually do have an extremely serious side because they demonstrate the total lack of understanding, which I think your paper that you and Angela have written highlights, you know, the deficiencies in our understanding. And we see the way in which certain sorts of gender stereotypes actually carve out an exception for child sexual abuse. So the sort of the stereotype of, for example, the teenage boy as always aroused and always interested in in sex, then makes, you know, the the sexual abuse of that young boy by, for example, a, a female teacher sort of eligible as child sexual abuse because the assumption is, well, as a teenage boy, they're always interested in sex and therefore sort of nothing untoward has taken place here. And again, that is just simply not not the case. This is a a gender stereotype about uh, teenage boys that can be used in order to justify and legitimise the sexual abuse of that child by an adult woman or indeed by an adult man and the sense that no no harm is, is done. Now, that is just simply not the case when we look at the mental health trajectory of that child, and also when we look at that process of sexual formation and how that boy, young man is coming to understand boundaries, is coming to understand, you know, his own body, other people's bodies, and what constitutes appropriate sexual interaction, you know, that natural process has been interrupted by and distorted by this sexual boundary violation. But, you know, gender stereotypes kind of come wrap around 
these scenarios in really problematic ways. And that includes when, for example, girls experience physiological arousal, we've got a different cultural connotation around that. It's, it's actually quite stigmatised sometimes. And that has its own complexities here too. Well, on that note, we could carry on talking about this, but we've been speaking for some time. So we better draw this podcast to a close. And I should remind those who tune into these podcasts that we've got the Hugh James NSPCC conference coming up very soon. And that is on the 7th of April. And Professor Michael Salter is one of the speakers at that conference. So we hope that you can join us for that. So as always, thank you very much. And thank you too to Professor Salter for this very interesting podcast. And as always, if you have any concerns or questions, please do get in touch. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.